The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Julius Kim. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Father, truly, our hearts are prone to wander prone to wander and leave the God we love. And so, Lord, we sing, this is our prayer, that you would take our hearts, take and seal it for thy courts above, especially as we reflect upon the grace that you have so freely given to us through through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. For our morning devotions this morning, I'd like to turn to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, verses 15 to 35. Though we don't have too much time, I want to do reflect upon this passage this morning, especially as it shows us how human these patriarchs can be and how prone to wander their hearts can be, what it speaks to us today. So Genesis 29, verses 15 to 35. Listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. 
thus far the reading of God's word. As you know, we're completing a series on the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And I think oftentimes when we hear a fancy word like that, patriarchs, a word that's not often used in our culture today, we think clearly these are heroes of the faith, right? Role models that we look up to, people that we should emulate and model our lives after. And then we read stories like this, stories of human people, messed up people, frankly, people like you and me. And as we read the story about Jacob, Laban, Rachel, and Leah, we see that sometimes these patriarchs are quite the opposite of what we expect. They're not heroes of the faith, are they? But in that way, they're just like us. People who don't seek the grace they need and don't deserve the grace they get. And so what I want to do is look at this passage through three of the characters and see what they can teach us about grace. The grace that they so desperately need but don't seek, but also how they deserve, they get the grace that they don't deserve. So three characters. Let's take a look at Jacob first. Then we'll take a look at Leah. And then the last name mentioned, Judah. There's others, obviously, in this story. But for our time, let's take a look at just these three characters. So first, Jacob. Remember where we are when we get to this chapter in Genesis and the patriarchs. What is Jacob doing here at Laban's house? For those of you that remember, remember God promises to the great patriarch Abram, Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, to bless him, to bless his family. So much so that the Messiah will actually come from this family line. Wow, the Messiah himself. What a wonderful promise. So God blesses Abraham and Sarah. They have a son named Isaac, another great patriarch, the first of the promised seed to Abraham. We, read, we, read, we continue to read in God's revelation that Isaac marries Rebekah, and they receive twins from the Lord. But as you know, these are not ordinary twins. God states that the elder will serve the younger. And in spite of this prophecy, Isaac actually loves Esau, the older. And so you can imagine all the, the dysfunctional, relational dynamics that must have been awkward to say the least, as one parent favors one and the other parent favors the other. Talk about a messed up family. And we know that when it was finally time to give the blessing from father to son, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives his aging father, receives the blessing that was meant for his brother Esau. Now things went from bad to worse. As you know, Esau vows to kill his brother, so the deceiver must flee. And this deceiver now has no family, no inheritance, and nowhere to go. So Jacob goes to his uncle's house. And this is where we come to our narrative. Laban is the sister of Jacob's mother. Jacob flees to the mother's side of the family, to his uncle Laban, who helps him with his shepherding business. But during the course of working with Jacob, Laban quickly realizes that Jacob is quite the astute businessman. He's quite gifted and skilled, shepherding, so He's overcome and desperate, Jacob is. And so there we begin this narrative. So let's take a look at Jacob here. And especially this unique feature of Jacob, his desire and his desperation that seems to characterize him. In verse 15, Laban begins his negotiations, right, with Jacob. Jacob, what should I pay you? You're a great employee, you're a great manager. He knows he can make a lot of money with Jacob. So he asks, what do you think you deserve? Which is always a good ploy when you're trying to hire somebody. 
What do you think you deserve? Simply, yet poignantly, Jacob says just one word, Rachel. Verses 16 to 18 tell us more about his desire and his desperation that characterizes him. First, in in verses 16 to 18, we learn that Rachel, unlike her older sister Leah, was, quote, beautiful in form and appearance. And in Hebrew, the word translated form is exactly what you think it is. She had a beautiful figure, a beautiful face. She had a beautiful figure, a perfect face. And so it's not strange for a young man to find a beautiful young woman attractive and desire her. But what we may miss in the narrative here is this almost intense, almost over-the-top kind of desire and desperation Jacob has for Rachel. That's being described here by the narrator. In fact, one commentator notes how many signals are here in the narrative, in the Hebrew, that shows how desperate Jacob is. Take, for example, in verse 20, where we read that Jacob's service of seven years seemed like nothing. Seven years seemed like nothing to Jacob. Just to get married. Now think about that. Young men who are single. Seven years? Nothing? You think three-year MDiv is hard? This is a seven-year wait for marriage. Now some background might help us understand what's going on here. And the, and the, and the, the, the level of his desire and desperation. You know, during this time when you wanted to get married, one of the duties of the would-be husband would to provide a bride price to the father-in-law pay some money for losing his daughter. Usually at this time, it was about, from what I understand, about 30 to 45 shekels. Now, for those of us that don't know even what a shekel is, let me give you some perspective. If you are an average laborer, you would earn about one shekel or one and a half shekels per month. That's that's the value of a shekel. Per month, you would get about one to one and a half shekels. Now, as a manager of a significant sized flock, let's say Jacob earned one and a half shekels per month. That was his wage, or 18 shekels per year. And so the average bride price, if it was 30 to 45 shekels, it would take you about two years, three years tops, to pay off that fee. Does that make sense? Two to three years to pay off the bride price. Now, when Jacob negotiates his bride price, he says, you know what? I'll give you seven years. That's 126 shekels. Jacob is willing to pay three to four times the average bride price. That's the level of his desperate longing for Rachel. He wanted Rachel and Rachel alone. But there's more. That shows you his, the level of his desire, the intensity of his desperation. It's actually, frankly, much more graphic. In verse 21, Jacob states very bluntly, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Now again, commentators note here the, the unordinary language being used here by Jacob. In fact, in the Hebrew, it is so graphic, so blunt, and frankly, so inappropriate that over the centuries, Jewish commentators have been doing a lot of mental and language gymnastics to try to make sense of it and make it seem a little bit more PG, let alone PG-13. What's the narrator trying to convey with all this, these signals? Jacob is a man driven by one thing, his desire and his desperation. He has an intense longing that was both physical and 
emotional. Why? What's the point? Why am I telling you all this? Simply this. Jacob was an empty man. He was a broken man. He was an empty man. Here, I think Tim Keller, he preaches, he preached this sermon before I think is very helpful. He talks about Jacob's background and how that helps us understand where he's actually coming from. You see, Jacob was someone who had an intense longing for love. Remember his story. He never had his father's love. His brother hated him, wanted to kill him, and the one love he did have, the love of his mother, was now gone. He had, no, he had nothing, no family, no inheritance, he had no love, and so when he came face to face with the beautiful Rachel, he probably said to himself, now, if I can just have her, at least I would have something. I would have the most beautiful woman around. Finally, my life would have some meaning and some purpose. You see, Jacob was desperately trying to convince himself that's what his heart truly needed to be fulfilled. The love of a beautiful woman. To be secure. To finally be happy again. You see what's happening here? Jacob's intense desire and desperation was coming from essentially a deep heart cry. He had a huge hole in his heart that needed filling. And so it was easy to believe the lie in his heart. The lie that was in his heart, the lie that the world tells him that something, anything other than God will be more fulfilling for this broken, brokenness and emptiness. So he tries to fill it. Friends, the narrator is revealing the harsh but true reality that outside of God, nothing in the world can truly satisfy our deepest longings for security and significance. Jacob thought he confided in Rachel. He listened to the lie that silently whispers, if I can just have, fill in the blank. If I can just be, fill in the blank. I would be happy. You see, Jacob is not seeking for the grace he needs. He was looking for love, looking for his identity in all the wrong places. And ultimately, the point of the narrator is clear for us. Frankly, he's asking us, are we any different at the end of the day? Are we any different from the so-called patriarch of faith? We may call it something else, but how many of us have ever struggled with feeling lonely, insignificant, wanting desperately to love and be loved? So where do we find meaning and purpose for our lives? Is it in our spouse, our children, our careers, our bank account, our retirement plan? Where do we find our identity, our sense of fulfillment, in what we've done and accomplished? Or perhaps it's the opposite. Well, we haven't done, at least I haven't done that. And what's so sad is that after seven years, Jacob the deceiver is himself deceived as he wakes up to see Leah. So let's turn and see what we can learn from Leah. You see, Jacob is not the only one to experience heartache because of his misplaced desires. Leah is also longing for love. Who is she? What do we know about Leah? The story doesn't tell us much, but this we know. She is the older daughter and she has, quote, weak eyes. I checked a few commentaries and there's actually nothing conclusive as to what this means, frankly. It may mean she had bad vision, that is she couldn't see very far, but 
That doesn't seem likely as this detail wouldn't add anything to the narrative. What it probably meant that she was probably cross-eyed of some sort that made her look less, frankly, attractive. She wasn't very beautiful. What we're sure about is that compared to Rachel, Leah was probably unattractive and lived her whole life in contrast to her absolutely stunning younger sister. And now that they're of age to get married, think of all the shame, the sadness that followed her each and every day. She was despised, she was rejected, she had no beauty, she was never desired. Nobody wanted her. Now we can, doesn't take much imagination to empathize with Leah, does it? Especially if you've ever felt the pain and shame of exclusion, whether from a bully, from discrimination, Think about it. Her whole life, she had lived in the shadow of her sister. And now she who nobody wanted was now being given to a husband that didn't want her as well. So imagine her heart. Imagine the hole in her heart, so full of grief and sadness, how desperately she longed for love and acceptance, to be known, to be desired, to feel complete, to feel whole. And what's interesting at this point in the story is how utterly similar Leah is to Jacob, isn't she? Here are two people with the same desperate longing for love and acceptance, trying so hard to gain their value, their worth, their identity from anything else other than God. And so she gets involved with Laban's deceit that recapitulates the deceit of Jacob. And it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? As her story goes from bad to worst, and as the narrative continues, we read a tale of more sadness and even more longing from verses 32 and following. See, Leah gives birth to her first son. She names him Reuben. Remember, names in the Bible are important. What does Reuben mean? It literally means to see. She names his son to see. Why? You see, she's hoping that through the birth of a son, maybe, just maybe, her husband will finally see her and love her. But that's not enough. She has a second son and names him Simeon, which has to do with hearing. And now she says, maybe now my husband will listen to me and my cries and love me. But there's more. Because he doesn't love her. She has a third son, naming him Levi, which means to be attached. Maybe now, after three sons, my husband will finally be attached to me. Friends, what's the point? She's desperately trying to find her value and her worth through her children. Don't get me wrong, being married, having children are a gift of the Lord. But they're gifts to be treasured and stewarded, not to be worshiped or used. She so longed for Jacob's love and acceptance that she placed all of her hope, all of her security in her sons. If I give my husband beautiful sons, surely he will finally love me. And my life will be okay. But in verse 30, we read simply yet painfully, Jacob loved Rachel more 
than Leah. Still despised, still rejected. And so it doesn't take much to imagine the unimaginable heartache and pain that Leah must have felt every single day of her life. Even after bearing her husband three sons, this is Leah's longing. You have Jacob's desperation, and this is Leah's longing. This is her shame, this is her misery. Just like Jacob, she's not seeking for the grace she needs. She's looking for love in all the wrong places. Friends, what the story is teaching us is about our own hearts and lives that are so prone to the same type of action to fill our deepest longings. The narrator is asking you, are you seeking for the grace you need? Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Are there things in your life, even good things, that you are treating as the ultimate thing? You know, the things that if it were taken away from you would cause profound distress and devastation. Can you let go of everything? Does anything absorb your heart and your imagination more than God? You see, friends, as the story teaches us, an idol is anything you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that and it's not taken away from me, then I feel like my life has meaning, value, I'll feel significant and secure. And this is what often the stories of the patriarchs is about. Messed up people like you and me who don't seek the grace we need and who don't deserve the grace we get. Whether we're like Jacob desperately running after things that will never satisfy, or like Leah desperately longing for approval and acceptance, nothing in this world, even the good things, even spouses and children will fill the gaping hole in our hearts that can only be filled by God and his grace ultimately found in the gospel. And this is the hope that's available for Jacob, for Leah, for you and me, the grace of the gospel. So we turn to our last character, Judah, and what he can teach us about God's grace. Look what happens when Leah has her fourth son in verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Again, we so easily pass over verses like this, but it's time to slow down and take a look at what it says. With the three sons before, you can hear her desperate cry in the name she gives to them. Reuben, maybe she will see me. Simeon, maybe he will hear me. Levi, maybe he will be attached to me. All boiling down to maybe, just maybe, he will finally love me. But with her fourth son, there's no mention of husband. No mention of the child. She just simply says, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. There's been a breakthrough. Though the text is sparse in the details, something has changed in her heart as she now holds her fourth son and names him Judah. She has removed the idols of husband and children and given her heart, her whole heart, undivided heart to the God of grace, the only one that could satisfy her deepest longings. Who is Judah? Simply this. As you will see as the Genesis story progresses, it is through Judah that the promised king will come. The king will come through the girl nobody wanted. Leah, the unloved, the unaccepted, will be the mother of the Messiah. 
You see, Judah represents God's passionate and relentless pursuit of messed up people with messed up priorities, like Jacob and Leah, like you and me, who often don't seek the grace we need and don't deserve the grace we get. And verse 31 tells us that when Lord, the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. God saw and God loved. He is a God who loves the unattractive, the unwanted. He became the husband that Leah so desperately wanted and needed. But friends, you know he did more. He himself became the one no one wanted. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hid their faces. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. His own disciples abandoned him. Even his own father turned his back on him as he turned, as he hung on the cross. And then he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Judah's son do this? Friends, Judah's son, Jesus Christ, did this for you, for me, for Jacob, for Leah. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. His wounds have healed us, for the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, as we close, no matter how messed up our hearts, our lives, and our priorities may be. God has come in the person and work of Jesus, Judah's greater son, to love and accept desperately sinful people like you and me. In spite of our sin and our shame, he sees us and he loves us. He lived the sinless, idol-free life we should have lived died in our place for our sinful hearts and lives and rose again in glory to give us resurrection, hope, and strength to have undivided hearts that seek Him and Him only. Beloved, when Jesus meets you and loves you, you no longer become me-focused. You start to become God-focused and others-focused, like Jesus. Because in Jesus, you are fully known warts and all, yet you are fully loved and fully accepted completely, period. Only he can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. So friends, flee to him, rest in him, find your hope and peace, joy and confidence in him. He's all you'll ever need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories of grace that teach us the marvelous truth that you are a God of relentless pursuit, a God who runs after us, who sees us, who hears us, who attaches himself to us, though we are undeserving. And though our hearts so often go astray, so prone to wander, Lord, we thank you for the gospel that speaks a mighty word, the mighty word of grace. May that grace not transform the way we think about you, the way we live for you, the way we think about others and live for others. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California.
all rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.